We got crazy up in here tonight. We need Ben Hewitt to come back and uh, give me a pep talk every Wednesday night before I preach. Um, let me say a couple of things. First of all, I hope you'll take advantage of these uh, last couple of opportunities for us to be together. This is our last large group. Can you believe the semester's gone? Um, but we have the bonfire tomorrow night. Uh, and then the Christmas party. So I hope those are two things that you're considering seriously about coming to and putting on your schedule. Um, and then also, it's funny, I got a call this week from one of my friends. I feel like I need to set the record straight in case any of you are thinking this. And one of my friends, he's an RUF campus minister, he calls and he says, Jason, stay off of the message boards. They're, you're like getting just slammed. And I'm like, what is this guy talking about? Stay off the message board. And he said, you're not on the Ole Miss football message boards? And I'm like, no. Well, any, evidently, there's somebody that has the username of Jason Sterling. <laughs> that is on and, and is getting just ripped to shreds by people. Uh, so that is not me for the record, if anyone thought that. Um, yeah, so... Felt like I needed to say that in case you thought, who is this campus minister that's his first semester being all arrogant on the message boards about Ole Miss football? That is not me. Uh, I'm a fan, but not that big a fan yet. So, um, And then a couple things, too, I wanted to say. A couple of thank yous. First of all, I want to say thank you to the uh, music team. Uh, they put in a lot of work. Uh, outside of this night to lead us in worship every week. And so, music team, wherever you are, and all the people that have contributed, contributed to our music this semester, I just want to say thank you, uh, because I know how, the, how busy you are, and the extra time uh, is a lot, and so thank you very much for doing that. And if you see the music team, I uh, would ask that you would thank them as well. And then another thank you is, as it's the end of the semester, uh, it's hard to believe that it seemed like yesterday I was standing up here for the very first time. Anybody remember that back in September, September, August? I don't even know what day it is. Um, yeah, and so I just want to say thanks for loving my family and loving my kids and bringing me and welcoming me into your community at Ole Miss. We have absolutely loved it. I've absolutely loved it here. We absolutely love Oxford. And that's mainly because y'all have been just so great to us. And so please know that this Thanksgiving season, one of the things we're most thankful for is just this semester and all the ways that you've loved us and welcomed us. So thank you. Uh, uh, on behalf of my family. It's been a really, really good semester, and God has done some incredible things uh, this semester in our midst. Uh, and uh, So thank you. Uh, we're going to continue. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're actually concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark this semester, and obviously... Uh, in one semester, you can't possibly cover every chapter and every section and every verse of the book of Mark. Uh, that's impossible. And so what we've done is kind of did, uh, we've done a flyover of the gospel of Mark. 
um, and we've kind of, you know, hit, hit the highlights, so to speak. But I was thinking about how to end our series this semester, and I thought about, well, let's start where we began this semester in a, with a similar story. And so I thought of no better place for us to end our series in the Gospel of Mark than the passage that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Because in this passage, Jesus is asking us the most important question. He's asking us a question that if you've been here this semester, he has asked us pretty much in some form or fashion week after week after week. And the question that Jesus is asking is, how valuable am I to you? How much do I really mean to you? What am I worth to you? See, that's the question that Jesus is asking all of us tonight through this passage. And we find out really quickly in this uh, chapter what Jesus is worth to this one particular woman that we're going to read about. So follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy and inspired word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There are some who said to themselves indignantly, what, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, we do just pause and give you thanks tonight for all that you've done in our lives this semester, even the hard stuff that we've gone through. Uh, we say thank you because uh, you care about us and you love us and you long to conform us more and more into your image. And so thank you for all the ways that you've been at work and your faithfulness during the transition of this ministry this semester. Uh, we give you the glory for all of it. Jesus, we ask now that uh, we, you would come once more through your spirit 
and be at work through the preaching of your word. Jesus, would you be lifted up? Would you be held high? Uh, And would we be changed, led to repentance, but also uh, comforted and encouraged uh, through the gospel tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Look at verse 1. Mark tells us right from the get-go that the religious establishment had been seeking to kill Jesus for some time. The heat has been turned way up, and tensions are running at an all-time high. Mark tells us that, and he tells us that the religious leaders can hardly restrain themselves at this point in the gospel. But then look at verse 2. It says that the teachers of the law and the chief priests had to bide their time because it was Passover. There were tons of people in the city, and that meant if they, more than likely, if they were to arrest Jesus, that all-out chaos would erupt. And just at this point in the story, Mark introduces our passage that we're looking at tonight. And I don't know about you, but we're reading about these guys that are wanting to kill Jesus, and then all of a sudden he throws in this story about this woman anointing his feet, and pouring perfume on his head. And it seems like a pause in the narrative, doesn't it? It seems pretty disjointed and out of place, but what Mark is doing is he's revealing a contrast to us. The gospel writers often do that. They set up these contrasts in order to make a point. And so right between Judas, the betrayer, and these religious leaders that hate Jesus, we find this story of Jesus and this woman uh, and and what she's doing is pouring this expensive perfume on him. Well, what's the point? Here's the point. Jesus pushes us in one or two directions. He pushes us into extreme devotion or all-out hatred. And Mark shows us the nature of both. He uses the woman as an illustration of devotion. And he uses Judas in this passage to show, show us what it looks like to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when confronted with the extreme natures of Jesus, there are really only two possibilities open to our hearts. Deep commitment and love for Jesus or a sinister plot to overthrow him and rebel against him. Mark shows us the nature of both in this passage. And they both deserve our attention. So let's look at both of them. If you have an outline, uh, it should be on your announcement sheet. Let's first look at the devotion of the woman. The story begins, you see there in the very beginning, with Jesus at Bethany, and he's reclining at the table of Simon the leper. Now, let's take a note of that. The, Mark didn't have to tell us that he was a leper. Mark could have just said he's reclining, he's at Simon's house eating a meal. But he makes a point to tell us that he's a leper. This is more than likely uh, someone that Jesus had healed at some point in his ministry. But I think Mark is also making a broader point, and here's the point. We've studied it all semester, particularly in Mark chapter 2. Mark is reminding us who Jesus hung out with. 
He's reminding us that Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the lepers and those that aren't doing it right. He's reminding us that Jesus, in his ministry, moved towards the people that everyone else in the world is moving away from. You remember lepers, you know, they had this disease and they were actually put outside the city. They could not worship, they could not be with their families, and any time anyone would come near to them, a leper would have to yell out, unclean, unclean, away from me. That's who Jesus is reclining with at this table. He's reclining with the social outcasts of the day. And at this party, these folks witness one of the most remarkable things that they've ever seen in their entire life. I mean, get into the scene. I mentioned this in the very first RUF when we're looking at a similar passage. It's not the same, by the way. This is a different anointing than Luke chapter 7. But it's still... Just as shocking, isn't it? This woman busts in, if you look at the verses, and has a very expensive jar of perfume. This is most likely a family heirloom of some sorts. It's most likely her 401k or her retirement. And she breaks it open and she pours it on Jesus' head. And notice the passage says that it's very costly. And it's not joking. It says it's a year's wages back then. That would be the equivalent today of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 that this woman is laying down at Jesus' feet. One commentator says it this way, In a moment of quiet commitment, she had resolved that Jesus should receive her most precious possession. In gratitude for the past, she poured her future and her security on Jesus. And if you look at verses 6 and 7, look at Jesus' response to this woman's actions. Jesus praises her because she has put him above everything else in her life. Look at the verses. It says that she has done a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime. But you will not always have me. Now, let's talk about that, because that's interesting, isn't it? it? It seems a little odd. I mean, is Jesus saying, I don't care about the poor or don't help the poor? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. Here's why we know that, because Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? And we know in other places that Jesus tells us to move towards the poor and that he loves them deeply. And so what is Jesus saying here? Here's what he's saying. That the richness that his death brings is the most important thing in all of the world. And this woman realized that. This woman got that. But here's the irony. Her gift really was a gift for the poor, wasn't it? You know, this woman, this is actually a parallel account of John chapter 12. So you can look there at some other time. But in John chapter 12, we learn that this woman is Mary, Martha's sister. Mary and Martha, you might have heard about them in the New Testament. But they were friends with Jesus. And so this woman had been around Jesus and she had heard his teaching. And unlike the disciples who were like, Jesus kept saying, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer. And the disciples, if you remember, they're like, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to suffer. 
That's not what we're about. We're about riches. We're about comfort. We're about our own thrones and kingdoms. And Jesus is like, yes, I'm going to suffer. This woman heard Jesus teach, and she understood that Jesus wouldn't be here much longer. That he was going to die. And that's why in verse 8 she says that she has anointed him for his burial. This woman, days before the crucifixion, realized that Jesus was going to become poor so that you could become rich. She got that. And that is why Jesus summarized the beauty of her actions in verse 8 and says that she did what she could. There's a commentator named Kent Hughes. He's written several books. And he's a pastor up in Chicago or was retired and he tells a story about his wife Barbara and their young son Kent who's all he's also named Kent and she tells he tells a story about Barbara receiving this recipe box at a dinner party she had won this recipe box and Barbara loved this recipe box it was uh, actually a cardboard recipe box but it was decorated and done up real nice and it really forced Barbara to get her recipes organized and to actually uh, start to put her recipes on cards and put them in an actual recipe box. Before, she had had them just spread in drawers, written on anything that she could find. And so she sits down and she starts writing all of her recipes on these recipe cards and puts them in the box. And you can imagine how much time that would probably take uh, to, to rewrite those and recopy them. And her young son is watching her do this. And his first thought is, this box must mean a whole lot to my mom. Because she is spending so many hours working on this thing. Well, Barbara has a birthday coming up. And on her birthday, her friends drop by and surprise her with a birthday lunch. She goes out to birthday lunch. She comes home. And she notices that the recipe box is gone. She can't find it anywhere. She's looking around the kitchen. She starts to get very frustrated. She starts to get very angry, as you can imagine, when you spend that much time on something. And she is almost ready to boil over and scream out, Where is my recipe box? In the house. And about that time, here walks around the corner her young son, Kent. He's got his hands behind his back. His eyes are wide open. He is smiling from ear to ear. And water is dripping down his back onto the floor. And he pulls out behind his back the recipe box. And it is soaking wet. And he gives it to his mom and he says, Mom, happy birthday. I knew that you loved this recipe box because you have spent so much time with it and organizing your recipes. And when his mom opens up the recipe box, Kent had actually washed all of the paint and decorations off of it. And he had actually put tin foil on the inside. And when his mom opens up the recipe box, she finds three things. A black plastic alligator, a nickel, and a picture of Kent. (laughs) His most treasured possessions. 
And Barbara says in talking about that event that that now is one of her most precious and prized possessions. She says that if there was a fire in her home, she would get the family photos and the recipe box and take them out of the house. Why? Because it was a gift that was given for no other reason than pure, innocent love. You know, Jesus has a lot of strange things in his treasury. He has widow's pennies, cups of cold water, ruined recipe boxes, an alabaster, an alabaster flask. And the question that I want to ask you tonight is, does he have anything of yours? Does he have anything of mine? You see, I'm reminded as I read this story, I said this earlier this semester, but clearly this woman has seen something in Jesus that I haven't discovered yet. I just haven't. Because I don't spin like this on Jesus. I'm not sure I'm willing to give Jesus my most precious possession. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I know I'm supposed to be willing to do that. I'm not sure I am. And so what was it? What does this woman see in Jesus? I think it's two things. One is, she knows who, she, who He is. She understands that He is Lord. She understands that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, that He is preeminent over all things, over all creation, and that He should have that same place in her life, in every single area of her life. She should be holding with an open hand because she knows He is God. And he's getting ready to go to the cross and die for her sins. The second thing is, she knows who she is. And again, it's similar to the Luke 7. Again, they're different accounts, but remember, the prostitute comes in to Jesus and she does something similar that we see here in Mark 14. But I think, though they're different anointings, they're done for the same reason. The prostitute knew who she was. And this woman in Mark, in Mark chapter 14 knows who she is. And she knows that she is a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. She knows her need and she knows what Jesus has done for her. And she knows that he is her only hope because of her sin. And my question is what about us? Do you know tonight what Jesus has done for you? Is Jesus beautiful to you? Is he as beautiful to you as he is to this woman? Is Jesus preeminent in all of life? Could it be that the reason why Jesus is not beautiful to us, the reason that I'm not willing to spend my most precious possession, could it be it's because I've forgotten who I am? And I have forgotten just how gracious and how patient the Lord Jesus Christ has been with me. You know Mark Rick? He's the coach for, many of you probably know that name, but he's the football coach. Let me grab some water. <clears throat> he's the football coach for the Georgia Bulldogs. And he's got an adopted daughter named Anya that he adopted from the Ukraine. 
Anya was born with this severe, uh, gross facial deformity. And it was so bad that she was hard to look at. It was so bad that her parents, right after she was born, drove to the orphanage, dropped her off, never to see her again. You know, the statistics said that Anya would die in the orphanage. And you can imagine family after family that came to adopt a child quickly passed over Anya for obvious reasons. Until God in His grace brought a couple from Athens, Georgia, the Rick family, to this orphanage. And, after, and out of all the children in the orphanage, they pick Anya. I have a friend that works for Georgia. Uh, he did uh, a few years ago, and was, he worked video with video practices and different things. And he says it was a regular sight on the sidelines at practice. Anya would be sitting in, in the stands, and the final whistle would blow to end the practice. And here Anya would take off across the field, and Mark Rick would get down on one knee and hold his arms open. And Anya, he said, was smiling from ear to ear, running into his arms. And he said he would pick her up and hug her and throw her up into the air. And she would laugh. And he was smiling. And they were experiencing uh, joy. That is the gospel. You see it? You see, we're Anya. We're the ones that were hard to look at. We are the ones that no one wanted because of our sin. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. And God, who is rich in mercy and rich in love, reached down when we were hard to look at, when no one wanted us, and He snatched us in to His family. And adopted us. You see, that is what this woman understood. She understood that. And because of that, Jesus was beautiful to her. And that's why he says in verse 9, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. Why? Because her story is part of the gospel story. Because it is a demonstration of what happens in a person's life when they understand what Jesus has done through the gospel. And when they understand how gracious Jesus has been with them. And when they understand what he has forgiven them from, this is what happens. They give their most precious and treasured possessions. You see, my prayer for my own life and my prayer for this ministry is that the gospel would, and that's why I preach it every week, is because I want it to make its way down into my own soul and into your soul. So that Jesus will be beautiful to us. So that when we sing about him, we will just burst out and smile. And so that when it comes to God being preeminent over all things, we'll gladly let him take control. And maybe, just maybe, even go before him with our most precious possessions and say, God, it's all yours. For what you've done for me, I will give you everything.
The first thing we see is the devotion of the woman. And secondly, we see the betrayal of Judas. You know, we can assume here that because of the intensity of this woman's actions in kind of the scene, she probably gave no thought whatsoever to how people were going to respond at this party. And so she was probably mortified when she heard the responses of the disciples. Look at what some of the disciples said in our passage. They were saying to one another, what a waste. Couldn't this have been given and sowed and given to the poor? And then look at verse 5. It says, they scolded her. And in the account in John chapter 12, it says that Judas, it's a detail that we don't see here, it says that Judas was actually leading the charge. Remember, Judas was the keeper of the money bag. And he was leading the charge against this woman. And so this woman was most certainly humiliated. And the disciples are thinking, Jesus is with us. Jesus has got our back. He's going to side with us. And to their surprise, Jesus defends the woman. Look at verse 6. And Jesus says that she has done a beautiful thing. And then look at verse 10. Notice the word then. Very interesting. And the implication there with the word then is that it was this action, the action of the woman that actually pushed Judas right on over the edge. Judas is embarrassed. And he can't stand the fact that this woman is loving Jesus in this way. I mean, Judas couldn't tolerate someone who is fully devoted to Jesus and is willing to spend like this for Jesus for no other reason than out of the motive of love. Out of the motive than because they love Jesus so much. And so what does Judas do? Well, he leaves and he goes... And he sells Jesus out for next to nothing. You know, that was Judas' sin. His sin was selling Jesus. To to betray Jesus is to follow him only until it costs you. To betray Jesus is to follow him only until it costs you. You see, it's not that Judas, we often say, well, Judas, if he would have had more faith, he would have been all right. It's not that Judas didn't have enough faith because Judas didn't have any faith at all. Judas never made any kind of surrender to Jesus. Judas was a manager of God, not a servant of God. What does it mean to be a manager of God? To be a manager of God means that you follow Jesus when things are cool and life is good and you're comfortable. But when the storms come and the trouble comes and it's suddenly going to cost you to obey and stay with Jesus, then you sell him off like a stock that's no longer performing. See, that's what it means to be a manager of Jesus. And that's what Judas was doing. Judas was the ultimate fair-weather friend. When the going got tough, Judas sold Jesus out. And here's the interesting part. Look at verse 18. If 
you've got your Bible, look down there. It's the same chapter. Jesus says to the disciples, this blew me away when I finally realized this for the first time. He looks at the disciples and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Then look at verse 19. Every one of them said, said, is it me? See what that shows us? Every one of the disciples, those closest to Jesus that actually seen Him and touched Him, every one of them knew that they were capable of doing the exact same thing that Judas had done. You see, the Gospel says the truth that we often don't like to admit is that betrayal, the same thing we see in Judas, resides in all of us. And you see, the difference between Judas and Christians is not that Judas fell and we don't. Because the reality is, is we're all just like him. You see, the difference between Judas and Christians is that Judas had no place to take his failures. He had no place. And how do we know? Well, because his eventual suicide shows us that. That he had no place to take his failures. Christians do. Christians do. I heard a, this week somebody was, was in a conversation and said, you Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And you know what I said? You're right. We are. And Jesus loves us. You see, Jesus, because of, of, of what Christ has done, we have a place to take our hypocrisy. We have a place to take our failures. We have a place to take our mess. And we take it straight to the foot of the cross where Jesus says, you're forgiven. Go in peace. You see, that's the gospel. That's the beauty of what Jesus has done. And if you've been coming this semester, I hope that that is the message that you're walking away with. Not that you come to RUF and all these people have it all together, because we don't. But that you come to RUF and you say, this is about what Jesus has done for us. That your your eyes are on Him when you leave here, not on yourself. In trying harder, in doing better, in trying to uh, work towards your own righteousness because it will never work. Jesus is all of our righteousness. That's it. That is what we preach here. That's the gospel. Um, I took my girls a year ago. Yeah, in, in October. We went to Disney World for the first time. So you can imagine three girls, six and under, in Disney World. We went to Hollywood Studios one, one, of these, one of the days we were on the trip, and my parents went with us. They were helping with the girls. And if you've been to Hollywood Studios, you know it has the Tower of Terror. And you see that at any point in the park. You know, the door flies open, and, you know, the bottom drops out, and you can hear people screaming. You can look out over the park, but you can hear people screaming throughout the whole uh, Hollywood Studios. And so we were walking by it several times, all of our family. 
Well, my dad and Susie, my wife, and I really wanted to ride it. And so my mom, the plan was that she would keep all of the girls and we would go ride the Tower of Terror. Well, we take off to get in line and I hear these footsteps behind me and it's my daughter, Kate. And I'm thinking, all right, I'll let her come. But I knew that she wouldn't, she wouldn't make it. Like we would get a little bit closer and I thought she'd chicken out. Um, so we go through the line and we're just kind of hanging out with Kate and we keep getting closer and closer and I'm kind of like, all right, you know, how do I explain this to her? And we get closer and closer and closer and she still is not bailing out, which, to my surprise. And so we get all the way up to, you know, where the, the hotel bellhop or whatever is standing there and kind of directing us. And he says, you know, you four take these spots or whatever, you five, and you go and you sit in a pew if you've ridden the ride. And so we're right up near the top, and like Susie and I are thinking, we're the worst parents ever. Like, <laughs> like how, are we gonna, how are we gonna deal with this? Like, what if she's just totally, um, you know, scarred from this event? And so the doors open, and sure enough, we all, and I'm like, Susie, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out, but there's no turning back now. <laughs> And so we get into this ride, and if you've ridden it, you know, you do sit in kind of like a pew, and you've got that lap bar that comes down. Well, I put Kate right next to, to me, and I wrapped, and I said, they did the only thing I knew to do, and that was to wrap my arms around her and to hold on with her. And, you know, we started out, and it's pitch dark, and it's, it's pretty frightening. you got the pitch dark, and you got all this crazy music, and, and then the bottom drops out, and then it goes up and does it again. Well... We're screaming at the top of our lungs. Everybody's screaming. We get off the ride, and I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And Kate is actually smiling from ear to ear. And all that she could say was, Daddy, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Why? Let me suggest a reason why. It's because she knew her daddy loved her. And she knew that I was going to take care of her. And she knew that she was sitting in a place with my arms wrapped around her where she was loved. I don't know where you're at tonight. <clears throat> I know that some of you are going through some junk and a lot of stuff and it feels like it's too much for you to bear. All of us to some degree are struggling. Um, but what we see in this passage is this woman in Mark chapter 14. She's inviting all of us tonight, wherever you are, to come sit next to Jesus and to let Jesus wrap his arms around us and love us and forgive us. Will you come and experience his love and his grace and his mercy? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, um, you think I'm, I'm amazed at how good uh, the good news really is. Uh, Father, I'm amazed that um, we can come 
to you and be ourselves. We can come to you and say that it's all true and worse and experience grace and mercy. I pray that we would do that tonight. I do also, uh, part of the gospel is that you bring about repentance, true repentance in our lives. And so, would we experience grace, but would that grace and in the, in the kindness of God lead us to repentance, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. I pray that you would lead us as a result of your patience and graciousness with us, that that would lead us to true change for what you've done. Thank you for a great semester. And I pray that we would leave here focused on who you are and what you've done and that we would sing this last song with all of our hearts as a way to praise and worship you for the great God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.